Welcome back to the Growing Jew podcast. Today we are covering chapter 8 of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' book, Morality, entitled Democracy in Danger. And then we'll finish up with a thought on Parsha Mishpatim. The topic of the essay from Rabbi Sachs' book, Judaism's Life-Changing Ideas, is called The Power of Empathy. So let's go ahead and start with Democracy in Danger from Morality. So Rabbi Sachs starts off with uh, an opinion that the the shared tribe of our society is in a state of crisis. And he looks at two key elements. Uh, first, the presidential election in the United States and the Brexit Britain book, which occurred in 2016, which he found were uh, very bitter and divisive. Uh, he notes that populism is at its highest level in the West since the 1930s and that trust in politicians and governments has fallen to new lows. As for the United States, in 1958, three quarters of the electorate felt they could trust government to do the right thing all or most of the time. But by 2017, the figure was a mere 18%. And this extends even to our most idealistic members of society. Millennials are losing faith in democracy as well. Now, there's obvious reasons why this is happening. Uh, the world is changing very rapidly. It's unleashed by uh, un internet, instantaneous global communications, smartphones, and social media. And it's a, undergoing a type of a velocity of change that's unusual for history. The most obvious comparison is the invention of the printing press. And in, in a period of disruptive innovation, political systems can collapse as the very nature of power is changing. It's becoming less centralized and more diffuse. Rabbi Sachs wants to go back and talk about and contrast two founding documents here. So he wants to look at first the American Declaration of Independence and compare that to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, which was issued by the French Revolutionary Assembly in 1789. So as we're all familiar with, the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the French Declaration, in contrast, begins with, quote, men are born and remain free and equal in rights. There's two obvious differences between these. Uh, the American Declaration is explicitly religious. It refers to, quote, creator uh, explicitly. The French Declaration is a secular document. That's one difference. The second difference, which John Sachs wants to focus on, is, is the use of unalienable, which appears in the American but not the French version. And he goes on to talk about how the American Declaration is based on one kind of social contract. And we've talked about this before. It, it, its forefathers are the ideas of Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, while the French based their social, social contract right from the ideas of Rousseau. So let, let's look at the difference and, and how this impacts these two documents. Um, you know, Tabas Hobbes, again, talked about how there was a need to give up certain rights to allow the rule of law to protect people's security. So to create a contract, we have to alienate some of our rights, meaning we hand them over to a central law enforcing body. But there are certain rights we cannot hand over without defeating the whole purpose of the contract. And that's the meaning of inalienable. 
and for Hobbes, this was the right to life. The, the whole point of a social contract was to protect us from the fear of death and subsequently liberty and property, which is which the American Declaration finessed into liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So rights are the protected private space of our lives, which the state may not enter. And that's what unalienable means. It represents the lines the state may not cross. Now Rousseau's view of the social contract was quite different. The state's about addressing our interest as a collective body, seeking the common good. And the law is the expression of the general will. As uh, Rousseau felt, he felt any individual who would say, I don't want the common good. I want my own private and personal good. He was deemed by Rousseau as mistaken because deep down what he wants to live in a society, he wants the common good. And Rousseau comments about how he, quote, may have to force him to be free. We understand the individual's deep desires better than he does. So Rousseau's social contract is not based on the consent of the governed as private individuals. It's based on a politics of all of us together, a collective personality. And we hand over to the state the right to act on our behalf as a corporate body. Now, this can you can see how this can quickly devolve into what the scholar J.L. Talman called the politics of totalitarian democracy. Now, Jonathan Sachs points out that Rousseau never intended for this kind of politics to, to work the scope of a nation. He, he figured it could only work in small city-states such as Athens. And probably the best example in modern times would be the Israeli kibbutz, where everyone's part of decision-making or property belongs to the group, not individuals. And everyone has his or her own task to do for the sake of all. This is a form of utopian politics, but the Rousseau-inspired French Revolution, or its later Marxist version, really became a dystopian nightmare. And we see that beginning soon after during the reign of terror in 1793 following the French Revolution where it was over 16,000 people were sentenced to death. And this is what can happen when we pursue the common good at the cost of individual liberty. Now, Rousseau would have been horrified to see his ideas used in such ways, but his version of the social contract is a theory of maximal, not minimal government. And his version of rights is the opposite of what Locke, Jefferson, and the Anglo-American tradition thought. Rights do not define an area into which the state may not intrude. To the contrary, they represent claims upon the state that only political action on the part of the state can bring about. So you're seeing very different uh, perspectives on the role of the state and the need to separate yourself for protecting individual rights. And again, this goes back to the whole concept, as we talked about before, of unalienable rights. So the greatest difference is in the Anglo-American version, it's not the state that produces the highest social goods. It's the people. And they do that by coming together as families, communities, and voluntary associations. And the, the role of the state is to protect the space from the intrusion of politics. In contrast, the French revolutionary model, rights are delivered by the states, and families, communities, and voluntary associations are in the eyes of the philosophers of the revolution a distraction and a danger because they're an arena where people can come together and promote their interests instead of leaving it to the state to create the common good. So in the French revolutionary model, there's only two arenas, the state and the individual. The state works for the common good and that leaves individuals free to do whatever they like so long as they do not harm others. 
Everything collective is political, a matter of power. For the Anglo-American model, there's something above and beyond the state and the market. And that's the multi multiplicity of places where we can come together, not because we're paid to, such as the market, and not because law for forces us to, such as the state, but because we're moral beings who care about the neighbor and the stranger. Not everything collective is political. Some of it is moral, a matter not of power, but of conscience, duty, and virtue. What Rabbi Sachs argues here is that the French model has come to dominate more and more of Europe and America. And with it, rights have ceased to be restrictions in the scope of the state, and instead they're becoming entitlements with demands of action for the state. And as that happens, communities atrophy and voluntary associations lose their power and people start turning their state for needs that were otherwise met voluntarily by their community. With this, society withers and the scope of government increases. As we mutate as a society from the we to the I, all the institutions of civil society, atrophy, such as marriage, the family, communities, congregations, houses of worship, they still may have their strength in certain localized areas, but as a nation as a whole, they're declining, especially in, they, they lose influence, particularly in urban areas where there's poverty, unemployment, and uh, just symptoms of despair among the, people, the residents who live there. So when civil society grows weak and all that's left is the market and state, what, is, what becomes of it? Well, what happens is people start making demands in the state for things the state can't satisfy. Because the state can't create strong families or supportive communities. It can't provide children with stable and responsible parents. It can, it can finance schools, but it cannot inspire teachers. It cannot generate the work ethic. Self-control and resilience are vital if individuals are to escape the vicious circle of poverty. So as rights are increasing, increasingly thought of as entitlements, the, at the very time that the we, the feeling of collective responsibility is growing weaker. And this results in people who are successful, who have, who have uh, taken advantage of, the, of, the, of, the, of society, seceding from the masses. So you see the rich separating themselves off and not recognizing any responsibility to the poor. You create a, a dual society. Now, ultimately what happens is, well, as more and more is, is put on society to, to make up for the gaps that civil associations and voluntary organizations put together and were responsible for, neighbors helping neighbors, as that beat is thrust more into state hands, realizing that states can't accomplish this, the unmet expectations generate a mood of betrayal and resentment. And with that, people lose faith in politics and politicians. And that's when things can get dangerous with riots, anger, violence, and widespread cynicism among uh, about the value of democratic freedom. And this is where populism begins. It's born out of real grievance, genuine distress, and a widespread sense of injustice and, humil and humiliation. There's a book by G.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elegy, which uh, talks about and people not just feel like they've been betrayed, but truly have been betrayed and neglected when they, they feel the institutions and the elites that they once trusted don't care about them. They turn off and uh, they remove themselves from, from civil society 
and critique a populist approach. Now, populism really involves magical thinking. There's a belief that a strong leader with contempt for the democratic process, divisive rhetoric, who's relaxed about the truth or otherwise uh, ignores the convention of normal politics, appeals directly to the people, and blames the state or some subgroup of the nation as the cause of its problems, sometimes neighboring uh, nations or people. And instead of speaking to the better angels of our nature, they speak to the worst of us. And that this person can, can only, only them can only they can restore a nation's former greatness. And that's what Rabbi Sachs argues is magical thinking. And as we see in a lot of populist uh, efforts, initially there can be genuine gains in the short term, but as the realization begins to dawn that the problems are deeper and more intractable. Populist leaders start turning scapegoats. In his historical terms, that's often been um, minorities, oftentimes been the Jews. And there's a trend towards authoritarianism, where rights get swept aside, including justice and liberty itself. Now, one of the first people to warn us about this risk was Plato who said that democracy would always degenerate into tyranny. Athens, actually, two centuries later, sentenced Plato's uh, teacher, Socrates, to death for corrupting the young by teaching them the question. So the markets cannot deliver distributive justice. The state cannot deliver dignity and resilience, civility and responsibility for its citizens. States can deliver a lot, health, welfare, education, defense, and the rule of law but it can't deliver active citizenship. And that requires face-to-face -face care and compassion to create a good society. Removing the moral matrix of civil society and eventually you get populist politics and the death of freedom and the name of freedom. It's the wrong road to take. So as my wife mentioned, it seems like each week we go through and we, we get more and more depressed talking about um, the challenges we face. But I think it's important to uh, use Rabbi Sachs's teachings to to identify the problem with where our society is headed and again the whole point here is the he's, he's making the case that for us to live a full and healthy society we, we have to have a moral basis so with that let's go to our jewish tradition and let's talk about this week's parsha and see what lessons we can get from Rabbi Sachs's teachings from Judaism's life-changing ideas. And this week's Parsha is Mishpatim, and the title of this essay is The Power of Empathy. This uh, Parsha is a, um, a plethora of uh, varied laws. Um, this, this comes after um, the important Parsha last week where the Ten Commandments are given. But uh, this goes into lots of details of all different laws. And Rabbi Sachs wants to focus on one law in particular that was brought up in this week's Parsha. And he starts off with a story. Um, I'm going to try to summarize this pretty quickly. But it's a story about uh, a drunk person on a train who was being aggressive towards other passengers. And there was a, uh, an observer who thought he was going to have to physically restrain this passenger from harming people. But there was an old man at the train. And the old man approached this gentleman and Asked him, "You've been drinking? Like, why should I talk to you? Of course, I've been drinking. 
What do you drink? Saki. Well, I love sake. He started talking about his experiences with his wife drinking sake. And he asked the, the drunk to give a wife. And the drunk doesn't have a wife, doesn't have a home, doesn't have a job. He says he's ashamed of himself and tears start rolling down his cheeks. And the observer watches as this aggressive drunk by the end of this conversation is lying there sobbing in this old man's lap and it demonstrates that what the observer had sought to achieve by muscle the old man had achieved with kind words and it illustrates the power of empathy of seeing the world through someone else's eyes entering into their feelings and acting in such a way as to let them know that they are understood that they are heard that they matter and if there's one command in this week's part that really speaks to that, it's the line in Exodus chapter 23, verse 9. Do not oppress a stranger because you know what it feels like to be a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And the question is, of all the different laws throughout the Torah, it's in classically 613 commandments, why is this mentioned there? Um, and, and, and the question is, you know, certainly empathy is something that can be more naturally given to the people who are closest to us, to our partners, parents, and children, to those who are who we have a shared identity with, whether they be family, friends, clubs, gangs, religions, or races. The stronger the bond within the group, the sharper the suspicion of fear of those outside the group. So it's easy to quote, love your neighbor as yourself. It's very hard to love or even feel empathy for a stranger. As the primatologist Franz de Waal puts it, quote, we've evolved to hate our enemies, to ignore people we barely know, and to distrust anybody who doesn't look like us. Even if we are largely cooperative within our communities, we become almost a different animal in our treatment of strangers. But there's something about the uh, this specific command, which is so life-changing, because not only does it tell us to empathize with the stranger because you know what it feels like to be in his or her place, it even hints that this is part of the purpose for why the Israelites' exile in Egypt actually occurred in the first place. God's, God's saying to us that our suffering has taught us something of immense importance. You've been oppressed, therefore, you can come to rescue the oppressed wherever they are. You've suffered, so you can help others who have suffered. And I think this goes towards a natural instinct among Jews to fight for the oppressed. And we've done that our whole uh, recent history bears this out. There were Jews helping Gandhi in his struggle for Indian independence, Martin Luther King in his effort for civil rights, for African Americans, and Nelson Mandela in his effort to end apartheid. You'll see Israeli medical teams be the first to respond to a natural, a natural disaster today. And the religious response to suffering is to use it to enter into the mindset of others who suffer. Rabbi Sachs points out that oftentimes he felt Holocaust survivors was, were those who most easily identified with victims of ethnic war in areas such as Bosnia, Rwanda, Kosovo, and Darfur. And Rabbi Sachs, in the previous uh, work, Not in God's Name, he argued that empathy is structured into the way the Torah tells certain stories. And if you look at the story of Hagar and Ishmael when they're sent away in the desert, 
For Esau, when he enters in his father's presence to receive a blessing, only to find that Jacob already got the blessing first. And Leah's feelings when she realizes that Jacob loves Rachel more. These are all stories that force us into recognizing the humanity of the other. That, that person who seems unloved, unchosen, rejected. So, so why is, is the Torah telling us these stories in the first place? So we know that the Torah is not a history book. It's essentially a book of law. And again, this, this Parsha is filled with laws. But law without empathy, empathy equals justice without compassion. Rashi says, originally God planned to create the world through the attribute of justice, but saw that it could not survive on that basis alone. Therefore, he prefaced it with the attribute of compassion, joined with that of justice. That's how God acts and how he wants us to act. And narrative is a powerful way for us to understand that. So people who have suffered pain often respond by inflicting pain on others. And that can lead to violence, whether it's emotional or physical. And the only nonviolent response is to enter into the pain of the other in a way to ensure that the other knows that he or she can be understood, their humanity recognized, and their dignity affirmed. So Rabbi Sachs concludes here with a call about active empathy being life-changing, not just for you, but for the people you interact with. And actually, I was just listening to a, a podcast today from another podcast I, I enjoy, which is called The Orthodox Conundrum. And it was an interview with um, Mr. Roger, uh, a close friend of Mr. Rogers, and it talked about how, how Mr. Rogers is always able to be present when he was speaking with someone else, completely focused on that person, like they're the only person that mattered to them at that point. And he just exuded such empathy that um, he, it was so easy for people to reveal their vulnerabilities to him. And I think, you know, when, when we are present and when we try to, uh, to put ourselves in a position where we can try to relate to the other, uh, we are doing God's work here on earth. So the life-changing idea from this week's Parsha, Mishpatim, is if if you seek to change anyone's behavior, you have to enter into their mindset and then say the word or do the deed that speaks to their emotions, not yours. Only, if the, only by being empathetic and developing that skill can we really form real bonds with other people and if we want to not just understand them, but help them, we really have to come to the place they're at, not to our own place. So hope everyone enjoyed these ideas and look forward to talking to you next week.